Boys and ghouls, welcome to a special episode of Dads from the Crypt, Dads from the Crypt podcast. My name is Jason. I'll be your host today. And we're talking with author Wayne Byrne to discuss the works of Maverick filmmaker Walter Hill. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Thanks for having me back, Jason. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, great to have you back. We had a lot of fun on your uh, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, episode. And uh, you're back because you wrote a new book. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the new book is called Walter Hill, The Cinema of a Hollywood Maverick. And as the title suggests, it's a book all about the movies and some of the TV work of the great director, Walter Hill. And, you know, he was it was a strange thing. There was no books available on Walter Hill, even though he's considered this Hollywood legend, you know, massive career over the last 60 years. Um, one of the most revered you know, directors. If, if you ever talk to anybody who works in Hollywood, they love Walter Hill. And I was shocked. You know, there was no books I could get. There was one book, I think, written in either France or Italy a couple of decades ago that was out of print. But I was like, why is there no books on Walter Hill? And he was one of my favorite directors. So when I finished up Welcome to Elm Street and, you know, I had the opportunity to do another book with my publisher straight away, I was thinking, wow, I think I should do a book on Walter Hill. It'll be the first one. And what happens? Three books are coming out now around the same time on Walter Hill, but luckily I'm the first one out there. So nice. That. That's still that. If, if you want something, you can't find it. Go do it yourself. Exactly. That's always been my attitude with these books. You know, they're the books I want to put on my shelf, but I can't. So I just go and write to myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, now, just to go right to the lead, you've, we've used the word Maverick a lot already. What exactly earns him the title of Maverick? Well, even though he works within the kind of Hollywood commercial milieu, I think he's still one of those filmmakers. He's an auteur filmmaker whose stamp is so identifiable across all of his work. And even though like he makes action movies, he makes comedies, he makes he's made musicals, he makes westerns, he's made, he, you know, d- put his toe into horror with Tales from the Crypt. There's something very distinctive about Walter and he's able to maintain his vision even within the confines of the Hollywood studio system. So he's not working on the fringes. He's, he's not like, you know, kind of, you know, working in low budget art house territory, which is usually kind of the reserve of artists who have a bit more leeway in terms of the creative control over their work. But Walter works within the Hollywood, you know, studio confines, and he's still able to maintain a very distinctive artistic control and stamp on his films. And I think that's what makes him a maverick. And he's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't kind of conform to what's fashionable in Hollywood either. I think that marks him out as a maverick as well, because, I mean, look at his latest movie. It's a Western, you know, <laughs> Dead for a Dollar. And Westerns haven't been all the rage in Hollywood for a good few decades. You know, they kind of come and go in terms of popularity. I think the last time they had some major popularity in Hollywood was probably the early 90s with Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven and um, Dance Kevin Costner's Dances at Wolves, that kind of thing, you know, but it's it's kind of a rarity that they kind of, you know, they make money in Hollywood. You know, I think ever since um, Heaven's Gate, 
bombed so spectacularly and killed off the new Hollywood movement in the early 80s, you know, the Western genre has been out of favor in Hollywood. <laughs> so I, I think, he, yeah, he, he plays by his own rules. Like he makes the movies he wants to make. And that's, for me, marks him out as a maverick, an auteur filmmaker. And how much time have you spent, do you think, talking to him and making this book? We kind of did it over a few days, you know, because I knew, see, it was it was kind of difficult going into it. I I never thought I would actually end up talking to Walter Hill. I kind of went into the, this book assuming I, I never would because I knew he was in the middle of making his new movie. And I know he's not big on interviews and he's not big on looking back on his movies and talking about his movies. As he said to me, once his movies are finished and he sees them, you know, the final cut, that's the last time he watches them. So it's probably, maybe it's hard for him to you know think about to go back and talk about specific scenes in a movie that he hasn't seen in forty or fifty years. But I was lucky enough that I got him, and you know he was very generous with his time, even though he was in the middle of making his movie. So yeah, we he he gave me some you know a good few hours of his time, and we really delved into pretty much every film that he's made. You know, with with some exceptions, there were certain things I set myself some parameters. I didn't want to talk about Alien too much. Because I, I figured I have the opportunity to talk to Walter Hill here. This is my chance to dig into the movies I love that aren't written about. Movies like Extreme Prejudice or Trespass or Last Man Standing. I don't want to waste that time talking about Alien, which has been so written about, so documented, you know, over yeah. the decades. You know, if you if you want to find out something about Walter Hill's involvement in Alien, you can easily find it out there somewhere. So, you know, we do touch upon it here and there in relation to other stuff, but I kind of went in and decided, no, I'm going to use this time to really dig into the works that I want to celebrate. And as you've seen in the book, we do talk about every film he's directed, but I I really dig into the stuff I love. And, you know, Tales from the Crypt gets a chapter as well. So that was something I was really excited about. So Walter was very generous. He said, you know, at the end of every session we had, he said, listen, if you want to talk again, I can be available. So he was he was very generous for a person who doesn't like doing these things and he doesn't seem you know the most comfortable talking about his certain movies or whatever it is he was more than generous and a very accommodating guy but we we got off to a great start because we both have a shared love of old hollywood and in particular certain directors like harold hawks and raul walsh and john ford and people like that dw griffith so we started off just kind of fanboying about mm. these old movies which i kind of i think it put me at ease because you know it, it, it took me out of that kind of you know, interviewer, subject, fan, hero, kind of you know situation for a few minutes, and we for for those that for that time we were just two movie fans shooting the breeze about these movies we love. So that kind of got us off on a, a really good footing, and yeah, he was just he was more than generous, but um, you know, a man of formidable intellect, um, especially as a film historian. My God, I thought I knew about movies. He he could match me on every level in that regard. But then again, he's lived it so. You know, it was a fun time. It was one of the one of the highlights of my writing career so far. Really talking to Walter. That's awesome. I I always forget that he did Brewster's Millions. <laughs> that just makes me laugh. Brewster's Millions, and you know, I was only talking about this the other day with another journalist. Um, Walter always says, you know, every movie he makes is is a western, pretty much in some way or the other. Mm. And I, well, going into this, I was kind of like, what am I going to write about Brewster's Millions? Because I hadn't seen it in a long time, and my idea of it was. When I first encountered it, you know, it was it was an eighties comedy with Richard Pryor and John Candy. Mm-hmm. You know, I had all these other ideas about what I wanted to write about with all the other movies, certain themes and ideas and you know, um, subtexts. But Brewsters, I was like, okay, how am I going to approach this? 
and I watched it again a couple of times before I started the book. And then I then I realized, oh, this is Walter's Frank Capra movie. It's his Preston mm. Sturges movie. It's his 1940s social comedy movie. And sure enough, when I, when I spoke to Larry Gordon, the producer, Herschel Wingo, the screenwriter, and Walter, of course, they all said, "Yeah, this was this is Walter's Frank Capra movie." Because you know he's he's been wanting to remake movies like The Great McGinty for a long time and just never got off the ground. But um, this was, you know, once once those guys said, "Yeah, this is Walter's Capra esque movie," I was like, "Okay, that's my way in now. This isn't that's my way in to analyze the movie and to write about it in those terms and in that context." So, yeah, Brewster's Million Millions, I think, is as valid of analysis and celebration as any other Walter Hill movie. It's, it's a, it's a great comedy. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I think I've been at least 10 or so, around 10. I think when I saw it. Yeah. And it's, it I still great. remember it really well. It's a great, it's just a great, it's a great concept. It's a great movie. It's yeah, Richard Pryor I, and John Candy. What more did you want? Yeah. And I think that's the great thing about Walter as well. Coming back to the whole Maverick thing and him working as a Hollywood commercial movie maker. Apart from anything else, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, we're lauding him up as a, this great artistic auteur filmmaker. But at the end of the day, he's also a wonderful populist filmmaker. He makes these wonderful, great commercial entertainments. So whether you're analyzing them for, for depth, for, you know, for these kind of literary excursions, or if you just want to sit down and enjoy a popcorn movie, Walter's your man. He's just a great commercial mainstream filmmaker at the end of the day. And I think that's why, you know, the likes of 40 hours, for example, is so beloved and so huge because you don't have to be, you know, a film historian or a film critic or a film enthusiast to to enjoy it. You can just sit down and just, you know, enjoy a great action comedy for those two hours. Right. You no, know, he's definitely an entertainer, which you know, yeah. you can be many things. But if you get, if and in the end, the people are entertained, they can make them scary, make them laugh, make them cry. But people won't be entertained more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to kind of frame this discussion a little bit around history. Tell us the crypt episode, though, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, so we all know that he had the uh, honor of doing the very first episode. Um, I mean, we don't know. It's debatable what order they were made in, but the one that was yeah. premiered first, The Man Who Was Death, which is you know a William Sadler vehicle. Um, and originally they wanted to go with a much more name actor. Um, and William Sadler at the time, you know, he was big on Broadway, but that didn't really mean anything in, in Hollywood. Um, but it was that I, I read that Walter really went to bat when he saw, uh, William Sadler's performance. Absolutely. William Sadler originally read for the, the part of the cop who comes in at the end and, you know, I think he rests him, he reads him the mm-hmm. random rights or something like that. But Karen Ray, the casting director and Walter both really saw something in, in William Sadler. And thank God they did because that, as he said in the book, he told me that that gave him, that opened so many doors for him that gave him a great career. And he, you know, for years has been one of my favorite actors. And mm-hmm. you know, it was such a pleasure to to talk to him and, you know, to understand his love of Walter and the respect he has for him. And, you know, they went on to do some great stuff together, including Trespass, which is one of my favorite Walter movies. But um, yeah, The Man Who Was Dead, I think, is just a fantastic showcase for William as well. I mean, he has all those great monologues to the screen, you know, where he's just talking about his love of electricity and his, mm-hmm. you know, kind of... um his love of his job as executioner, which has been taken away from him. And he's, he's perfect for that. There's a certain kind of wry, dark sense of humor that he brings to it, that he just, you know, he, he he's relishing that, that psycho role well, so much. He's a, he, he comes, he comes off as a man of principle, even though those yeah. principles are very immoral <laughs> to everyone exactly. else. But to him, it's, it's a principle. 
It's in, oh yeah, it's absolutely. And isn't that that's that great tales from the crypt thing of you know these people think that they are living according to their sense of their, their moral code, but his moral code is, is kind of twisted, you know. And he he gets his just desserts in that kind of time honored tales from the crypt fashion as well. So um, it's a great setup, I think, as a, as a first episode to that show. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I think, and just stylistic stylistically as well. Because Walter's directing that first episode, it's really setting the bar high for the series, you know, and what's great about it for me as a Walter fan and historian is he's using some of his regular collaborators in there as well. As I mentioned, his his regular um, actor, second unit director and stunt coordinator, Alan Graff is in there in cutting cards, actually. Um, but in the first episode, you also have Roy Cooter doing the score, you know, and you have um, John Leonetti as a cinematographer and, you know, Carmel, da- Carmel Davies editing so this is very much a, a walter hill joint you know so it's a it's a great little half hour piece of walter hill filmmaking even though it's in the in the context of this show which is completely separate from walter in many ways but it's well, just a fantastic episode yeah i mean cinematically it's really impressive what he what he can do with you know not much you know yeah. but the budget was probably wasn't very much at all but you know yeah. we've got great claustrophobic shots in the prison yeah. And then we have like these shots of like Sadler giving that monologue on an overpass. Yeah. Um, and I love the use of color in this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it really sets up that kind of that graphic art visual style, which, you know, is intrinsic to Tales from the Crypt. And it's, it, it's honoring its literary, its comic book origins, you know, as well. So I think Walter's love of comic book art and love of EC comics, you know, stood him in, in you know, very well for when he came to that series because he he had the eye for it which that kind of thing needs it's like that movie creep show you know it's so so much identifiable in its comic book style you know it feels real it feels that it's honoring that kind of uh, graphic art so so beautifully and i think walter was the right man for the job on this one right so can you talk about what influence comic books had on him as far as not just the style but like his pathos yeah, well, Walter was said, as he said to me in the book, is he was never into kind of like the the superhero stuff in terms of comic books. He loved comic books, but he loved the kind of the lurid stories, you know, the kind of the the cheap dime novel kind of stuff, you know, or if there were stories about you know criminals and cops or the kind of the horror stuff, you know what I mean? So I think there's a certain um, there's a certain dark humor to those kind of things and a lurid quality that attracted Walter, and he was able to parlay into these stories then you know as, as a filmmaker so these are kind of the things that you'll see in walter's films you know such as streets of fire or johnny suede and the warriors things like that there's great graphic quality graphic art quality to those films now sometimes it's not explicit you know say you look at last man standing and you you wouldn't necessarily think oh this is influenced by comic book art or comic book stories but then walter had a comic book out fairly recently, actually, which is very similar to Last Man Standing. And when you look at the panels of that, you go, oh, yeah, actually, now I see what he was doing in Last Man Standing, you know. But, um, yeah, I think it's a mix of the stories, those kind of morally ambiguous, you know, kind of plots and characters really appeal to Walter because he's not one really for drawing easily identifiable characters, you know, as good and bad, you know. I think all of his characters have kind of qualities that, can be questionable sometimes you know and that's what's great about them you know they're not so easily drawn and in a way that kind of goes back to um his what i would say subversion of 
the Western genre and Western tropes. Because if you look at his Western movies, you know, they're he's kind of he's kind of inverting them. You know, Westerns are traditionally very the characters are very easily drawn into good and bad, you know, the good guy in white and the black, the 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 bad guy in black. But if you look at something like Extreme Prejudice, where he's playing with those genre tropes and Nick Nolte is the guy who's dressed in black, even though he's the good guy, and then the villain is decked out in this pristine white suit. So he's playing with the iconography of genre, I think, as well. But he's just interested in, you know, the tropes of these early genres and what makes them so interesting. And then he likes to toy with them a little and just throw the mirror and, you know, kind of invert them a bit. And that makes it interesting because if you come to it thinking, oh, this is, I'm going to watch a Western, but you're not going to be watching a traditional Western. It's going to be a Western with a little bit of, a bit of a twist and a something different about it. Yeah. I mean, again, I think how he played with that and the man who was death really kind of set the tone. It's fine because it's it's kind of cylindrical wherein, you know, I think EC Comics and those kind of comics influenced him and then he kind of turned back around and yeah, influenced what, like, the 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 uh, playbook almost for the show of having, you know, these characters like that. Um, Absolutely. And so, great. Again, he's a traditional, you know, um, William Sadler's character is Niles Talbot. He's not a traditional hero in any sense. You know what I mean? I mean, he's, he says some things which can be questionable at times, but you're still kind of in a way rooting for him. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the genius of Tales from the Crypt and Walter Hill and those old stories is, you know, you're, they're forcing us to kind of root for people who we wouldn't necessarily or traditionally root for. So you kind of have to question things a bit more about them. You know what I mean? But still, the skill of the filmmaker and the storyteller is that we still do have a rooting interest for them. You know, I think that's what's great about that episode is you just, there's something about Niles. He is so likable in that William Sadler manner. You know, it's just a, a glint in his eye as he's given those monologues. You can't help but just like the guy. <laughs> right. Well, and then, you know, he takes that to another extreme in cutting cards where you have two, char- you only have two characters basically in this whole episode and you don't really want to root for either of them. And so you just kind of <laughs> keep switching back and forth. Oh man, they are both pretty, you know, horrendous guys, you know, and you're just like, who do you want to see done in first? You know what I mean? And and they're doing it, you know, to each other fairly rapidly. So you don't have to wait too long before you see them. The two of them just bobbling, you know, using their nose on a checkerboard mm-hmm. because they've used up all their limbs, you know, in these, these macabre kind of card games that they get involved in. But again, it's just what I love about Walter's episodes and Tales from Crypt in general is they have this kind of surreal sense of humor about them i don't know what it's very hard to describe like you know the stories are very colorful they're very visual they're very um they take you into another world almost even though they're set within some form of reality you know i love that i love horror ontology so it really plays into my wheelhouse and what i what i love about about horror you know so i don't i don't think there's enough um good horror anthologies out there you know when i think back to the time that tales from the crypt came out there was a few good ones. You know, there was a lot on TV. You had like Freddy's Nightmares. You had the Friday the 13th series. You had Ray Bradbury Theater. You had mm-hmm. Tales from the Dark Side. The dark you know, side, and then yeah. you had a couple of movies like one of my favorite movies of all time is Body Bags, the John Carpenter, yeah. Toby Hooper one. You know, to me, that's, I get that kind of feeling from Tales from the Crypt, you know, because obviously Body Bags is three short stories as well. So it really fits into that kind of 25 minute, half hour story thing. I just, there's something about that I love. And I love when they're kind of just that little bit extra surreal you know right which i mean that perfectly sums up this episode because it's just an escalation of you know absurdity of these two guys just shaking it so far to the point where they do the um 
the cutting, the, the literal cutting card, the, the cutting yeah. off of the limbs. But what I love about that is it's not just like they're in some backstreet corner cutting off each other's limbs. No, this is like an organized thing that happens. Yeah. <laughs> like that there's like professionals that set this whole thing, set this game up. Like, okay, it's Saturday night, time for our, you know, mutilation yeah. game, um, yeah. which is just so funny. And like, again, surreal to think about, but everyone's acting, everyone's acting like it's the most normal thing ever. Yeah, and it is so absurd, like, even to the point where, you know, Kevin Ty, you know, wants um, Lance Henriksen to fail so bad, he refuses to take back one of his fingers and put it back on, just so he can see Lance Henriksen, Henriksen suffer, you know? I love that mm-hmm. kind of, just that macabre sense of humor, you know, and Walter, Walter pitches it perfectly, you know, he understands the material so well, you know, that it works, it works. Right, what's so funny to me about that episode is, it's one of it's probably the shortest episode in all of Tales of the Crypt. So in all like ninety episodes, it's probably That's the right. short. I think it's the shortest by runtime, but the it tension is. is so good, yeah, that it feels like twice as long as it should be. Yeah, it's such a simple premise, and of course, it's mm-hmm. based on an old Alfred Hitchcock presents scenario as well. You know, so uh, I remember talking to Bob Gale, the who's most well known for being the writer producer of Back to the Future. And he directed some episodes of Tales from the Crypt as well. And I was talking mm-hmm. to him about it. And he's like, who in the world has the temerity to remake Hitchcock? Walter Hill, of course. And he was able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah, to do it successfully. Yeah, probably that like, could be like the most successful of all the uh, attempts to <laughs> do Hitchcock. Yeah. But then, um, I mean, when you look at something like Deadline, mm-hmm. Deadline to me is the, the, the odd one out of the tree. Yeah. I think. And I think part of the reason for that is, on cutting cards, like on the first episode, Walter surrounded himself with some of his regular collaborators. But on Deadline, he, he didn't have really any of his usual people other than... No, I'm thinking of... Um, no, he didn't actually know that. I think I don't think he had any of his regular kind of guys in key roles, you know, like cinematography, editing, that kind of stuff. So it, and it feels slightly different, you know what I mean, than the other two as well. You know what's missing? What's that? Roy Brocksmith. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's one of my favorite character actors of all time. And oh, man, the great, that great that. barman. Yeah. yeah. You don't have Roy Brocksmith, it's not worth it. No, and he was in one of my favorite episodes of Freddy Night- Freddy's Nightmares as well. So he's just one of those characters, probably like William Sadler, but to a lesser degree in terms of he's, he doesn't get as much screen time. But, you know, he's such a such a familiar face. So even though you see him in small roles across many different movies and TV shows, he, he's always so memorable. And especially oh. in those two episodes mm-hmm. of Walters and but, um, total recall. That's right. <laughs> he has a great bit in that. Um, yeah. Deadline definitely is the, for lack of a better term, lesser of the three, which, you know, isn't, isn't a knock because those other two are so fantastic. Like, yeah. Cutting cards is definitely one of the go-to answers when people when I hear people say what their favorite episodes are. That's easily most people's top five. Really, um, that's interesting. And um, no, it's, I think it's a very memorable. It's a very, in a way, it's like it's so macabre in a in a funny way. It's a, such a black humor episode, but that's yeah. the one that like a lot of people really relate to or really remember. Yeah, I mean the performances are great, and Marge Helgenberger is fantastic in it. Um, oh no, I'm sorry, I meant cutting. Did I say deadline. I meant cutting cards. Oh, cutting cards. Yeah, is, is, oh, cutting cards. Well, yeah, is a fan can, favorite. Yeah, oh, I can totally see why. You know, it's short, sharp, snappy. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets straight to the point pretty much. I mean, as soon as Lance Henrik and, Henriksen arrives at the bar and he, he's introduced, it gets straight into it with him and Kevin Ty. You know, and it's kind of unrelenting for those. Was it about twenty minutes? Is it, is it even yeah, twenty it's, minutes? It's less than that. 
Um, but I think the thing the interesting about Deadline is it kind of like solidifies like the through line of um, feelings almost of resentment and disillusionment with you know your st- your your station in life. Yeah. Um, and you know obsession, you know with with you know a substance of alcohol in this episode, but whether it's you know with literal death in the first episode or you know just gambling yeah. in the second episode and um you know one of the, the main lines that always gets me in man who was death was when he says when he's fired he says uh if a man ain't good at his job what good is he yeah um so th- that's an interesting thing that kind of goes through all three of these episodes it does and um i think what's what is very good about deadline is that it has a very um walter said it sets up a nice kind of i think film noir atmosphere mm-hmm. You know, he has the guy, the kind of the hard bitten, cynical guy telling the story, setting it up, which is really kind of a a, a very film noir thing. It's it's the story. Somebody's telling the story who is already kind of doomed. You know, what I mean, they're, they're set up for this kind of hard station in life and things are going to go wrong. So you're just kind of following it. See how bad is it going to get for this guy? And it is it's it's nicely done. I think in terms of the style. It is missing, I think, that kind of the graphic quality of the first two episodes, that kind of comic book mm-hmm. thing, that look, which really became, you know, identifiable to Tales from the Crypt. But it's it's a it's its own story almost. As I say, it's more film noir, it's a bit darker, it's a bit more um austere looking. So um it's interesting from that point of view. But um I think just from an enjoyment level, I don't think it's on par with the first two. The other two no. are just kind of mad, manic, surreal comedies. If anything I would say that Deadline would benefit from being a longer episode, like an hour, or maybe like maybe some sort of movie. Like you could you, you could take that a lot of places. Um, oh, definitely, done a lot of backfilling. So I think if anything, it's it's hindered by the runtime, um, which is you know oh. it happens in tales sometimes. Sometimes absolutely, and, and it wraps it. around very quick as well. I find, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that character, that lead character of the journalist, the alcoholic journalist, definitely deserves a bigger canvas. Mm-hmm. I think he's a he's an interesting character who needed you know or deserved kind of a, a bigger a bigger story to be told around them but you know it it, it works it's fine it's just yeah. the lesser of the tree i would say and now again going back to those themes we talked about of you know which is i think is maybe a a male a man trope like i don't know how exactly how to say it but like you know oh man's got to have his job man's got to be good at his job but what, what's my worth without my job is that something that reflects back on walter at all that's interesting. Like he's you know, like I like with this book, you know, I kind of wrestled in the in the opening pages. It's it starts out kind of like talking about the auteur theory in relation to Walter. You know, I was kind of I was trying to figure out how to frame the book, and I was kind of thinking, yes, Walter is an auteur filmmaker, and I'm sure he's aware of that status that surrounds him. But I quickly realized, and I I also I guessed because I know a lot of these guys. Some of these guys are my friends anyway who've worked with him and I got the sense that he's, he is as quick to deflect approbation to his collaborators. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're paying tribute to him or paying, you know, whatever kind of compliment, you know, he'll say, Oh, well, that was, that was Freeman doing his editing or that was Michael Shea on the camera. You know what I mean? He's, he, he's not one to kind of take all this kind of acclaim for himself. You know what I mean? And, um, that idea of, how your job kind of defines you almost was something I kind of had to 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 deal with in terms of how I how I framed the book, you know, how I framed Walter as a filmmaker, because I didn't want to make it a book 
declaring that Walter is just an auteur t- or auteur filmmaker because I spoke to so many of his collaborators and you know you realize how intrinsic they are what they bring to the film is so unique and yeah so even though he's an auteur filmmaker it takes these many collaborators to get it to that point where it feels like a Walter Hill film if that makes sense you know mm-hmm. so like when you look at one of Walter's films which has been shot by Lloyd Hearn you can tell it's been shot by Lloyd Hearn because he has a very distinctive style. Now that distinctive style doesn't take away from the Walter Hill style. It's just part, it becomes part of the Walter Hill style. And likewise, Freeman Davis's editing, you know, so I don't know. I don't know if, if Walter Hill would ever say himself, he is an auteur filmmaker, but he would, you know, he would just say he's a, he's a man who makes movies. I think is how he would define himself. I think you could say he's a man who makes manly movies. That too, <laughs> in, in in the broad in a broad sense, and and but not at least as far as I can think, like in any sort of toxic level. Oh um, no! If anything, no, if no, anything no. They're, they're toxic to themselves in, the, in their mean, masculinity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at go through the, the Walter Hill filmography, you will find so many wonderfully strong, independent female characters. They might not necessarily be the lead character, but they're cer- certainly co-leads or supporting. But there's so many of them in there, so many great female characters. And, you know, he, he he's responsible for one of the greatest female leads of all time, Sigourney Weaver and Alien. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, he's definitely a... And plus, so many people I spoke to said Walter is loved in the film industry for his endeavors in helping women step up to mm-hmm. considerable roles in the film industry. He's given people big time opportunities you know so he's uh he's certainly loved in the industry for for what he has done for female filmmakers so um if, if they're not always there on the on the surface or on the posters of the films on the front strong good well-written female characters are certainly there in the movies yeah i mean if there's one thing i'm getting off of this is that he's he's a very low ego kind of guy he he oh, totally wants to get the best people around him and let them do their work, which is what I think a lot of really successful filmmakers do. Is Absolutely, yeah. They, and that's why all these people come back to work with him time and again, mm-hmm. because he creates an atmosphere on the set of fairness. And the last thing he he ever wants is for, you know, the way he looks at it is movie making is a tough enough business as it is. You don't You don't have to be an asshole on the set to get people to do their jobs. You know what I mean? You hire people because they're, you know, they're good at their job. You don't need to be a tyrant on the set to get the work out of people. If you hire the right people. And plus the, the worst thing, apparently you could be to Walter is a bully. So mm. apparently his sets are, they're fun. You know, you're not going to see Walter, the tyrant, you know, Walter, Walter hires you to do a job. You go do it, you know? And apparently he's a very low, like, you know, hands off but you know he's not he's not the kind of guy who's going to be on top of you and being demanding you know so he just hires you and you go do your do the best you can mm-hmm. um yeah it's almost a shame that i've only got three episodes of a uh, from him boom and great to have him do some more um going yeah. forward absolutely but, it's cool to know that he was there in the background you know the whole time kind of mm-hmm. you know co-executive producing this with some considerable filmmakers i mean jesus Richard Donner, David Geiler, Joel Silver, Robert Zemeckis. I mean, that's an absolute dream team right there, you know. Right. And um, you spoke to David McGifford before about 
his episode and he detailed that, which was very interesting, you know, to get the, the, the Zemeckis angle on, on making an episode. And, you know, that was fun. I, you know, when I was, when I first met David, I was, I was asking him about that. And I don't think he had seen the episode in, in many years, but when you think about it, you look at David's career and it's so, so vast and considerable. And then there's this one episode of tales from the crypt stuck there in the middle of it. You know, I, kinda, I had to ask him about that myself, but, um, so it was fun to listen to you guys talk about that. So what else, um, what else surprised you in the process of making this book? The films that I ended up really loving, I think surprised me the most because I always had my favorites going in, you know, mm-hmm. and then there were the ones where, you know, I liked them, but they weren't necessarily, they were kind of midway down or maybe down to, at the bottom, whatever. But I found myself discovering so much about some of the movies that I didn't love as much going in. And now some of those movies are actually some of my, not only my favorite Walter Hill movies, but my favorite movies of all time. You know, I went in loving, as you do, 48 Hours and Southern Comfort and The Long Riders and things like that. But there was a couple of films where Last Man Standing, for example, the one of Bruce Willis from 96, which is kind of like this strange hybrid of gangster film noir western, which in itself sounds odd <laughs> but it's you know it's a it's a reimagining it's an adaptation of akira kurosawa's yojimbo and very unique and i remember when i first saw it in 96 you know i was a bruce willis fan at that stage but i was a fan of the bruce willis of die hard and moonlighting right. you know the gregarious fun bruce willis and in the opening moments of last man standing which are very somber and very moody and you're introduced to bruce willis and he, he's he's gruff he's kind of stoic He's doing this kind of Robert Mitchum-esque kind of performance. And it threw me completely. I was like, what the hell is this? And at that stage, I guess Bruce Willis was bigger, a bigger name than Walter Hill. So it felt like more of a Bruce Willis film than a Walter Hill film, especially the way it was marketed. So I didn't, I kind of, I kind of went off it for a few years, but then I slowly came back to it over time. And in the couple of years before I started the book, I started to really, really like it again. And then when I started the book and I spoke to a good number of people from the movie and I spoke to Walter and, you know, whoever else. And the more I watched it, I said, Jesus, I think this is actually one of Walter's best movies. And it's not only that, I think it's one of the best movies of the 90s. It is so stylish. It is so beautifully done. I think everybody who's working on that movie is working at the peak of their powers. I mean, whether it's Lloyd Hearn's cinematography, the absolute most beautiful stuff he's ever done. Roy Cooter's soundtrack which brings great melancholy. Like it's, it's tough and rocking at times and bluesy and full of grit, but then at times it's so melancholic and it gives the film this undertone, this somber undertone, which is so, so effective. And I think so beautiful, which is, you know, another thing to say about a, you know, a violent gangster Western movie. But when I said this to Walter, he seemed so happy because, and it wasn't only about last man standing, but several of the movies that I loved. And I said it to him, he was very happy to hear because, you know, some of these films have been maligned and they don't have great critical reputations or they didn't do well to box office. So he was very happy to hear that not only did I love Last Man Standing, but loved it as much as I did, but also Another 48 Hours, which I think, and this is probably controversial, but I think Another 48 Hours is better than 48 Hours. Mm-hmm. I think it's everything that's great about 48 Hours times 10. You know, it's just, it's it's very similar in many ways, but everything about it is more stylish, more amplified, more exciting, more f- funnier. And talking to Alan Graff was great about that because he, he agrees with me, you know, because Alan had some big, big stunts to perform in that and to coordinate. So that was a big movie for him just to work on. So, um, yeah, I think the most surprising thing for me was 
rediscovering my love or just discovering my for the first time my absolute love for some movies that i previously just thought oh it's a good movie now which are now some of my favorite movies of all time now i still love the movies i loved going in you know long riders and southern comfort are still some of my favorite movies of all time so if anything this book has kind of made me love all of walter's movies so much you know so that was kind of a great discovery well, now that you've um, kind of closed this chapter, quite literally, on this book, um, you have you just finished your latest book. What's that one about? I did. I just finished it a couple of days ago. It's um, it's something different for me. It's a music-oriented book. So it's called Women of the Road and On Record in Alternative Music. And I co-wrote that with one of my best friends, Amanda Kramer, who herself is a terrific musician, and she is a woman of the road. Uh, you know, she she's been playing in bands for the last... 30 odd years you know some big big bands such as she's her, her her main job at the moment is she's the keyboard player for the psychedelic first she's been with them for 20 odd years she's played with 10,000 maniacs eurythmics the golden palominos you know we've known each other for a long time and we were just chatting she she texted me one morning as i was getting out of bed she's like hey i have a cool idea for a book let's chat so i was like okay i'll, I'll call you on my lunch break and see what the story is so she told me this idea she had which was a book about some kind of, these are all fairly well-known female musicians, but they wouldn't necessarily be famous. Some of them are famous in their own right, but some of them others wouldn't be, you know, so they're kind of, they're kind of people who they play on big albums. They play on big tours. They've, you know, created some memorable songs with these, with, with their, their artists. And she had 10 of them in mind. And we said, okay, that, this would be cool. I mean, if we could get the 10 of these people on board, we'd have a, great book here you know to tell their story so each chapter would be their story so we've we did that we spent the last year interviewing all these women and they've all come come on board and it's been fantastic and it's great for me in that it's it's the same approach i have to the film books which is it's telling the story of this of artists and art that i love that is kind of in some ways underappreciated. Now, some of these people, like I say, they're well known. They're already they're celebrated. So you have like someone like Gail Ann Dorsey, who was David Bowie's bass player for a couple of decades. So and she was a, a solo artist as well before that. So she'd be well known in that realm anyway. But then you have other people who might be less well known, such as Jane Scarpantoni or Sarah Lee, who have played with people like, you know, R.E.M., Bruce Springsteen, Gang of Four, B-52. So you know, it's great to kind of shine a light on these people who've contributed to songs and albums that we all know, but we don't necessarily know these women, you know, so we're kind of shining a light on them and their contribution to music culture. So it's been great. Yeah. So we're just, we literally just finished it up there a few days ago. We're getting into the kind of the editing phase and, you know, sorting out the the photographic illustrations, all that kind of thing. So it's going to be out next year. So yeah, it was something different for me, you know, music book and to be co-writing it with someone, but as I say, I love Amanda, so we just had a great time doing it. So mm-hmm. excited for it. Cool. And do you know what your next book might be? Or are you still uh, you taking a breather? We we actually me and Amanda have a couple of projects lined up. Um I'm still thinking about maybe some some film books. I know um some agents and publishers want to work with me. So I'm I'm you know, after six years of literally six years of nonstop writing and turnaround of books, like literally I've gone from finishing one book, starting another with no break. I think having now finished this new book and once I finish promoting the Walter Hill book, I think I'll take maybe a month or six weeks off, you know, and chill out and just enjoy the fact that these books are now out there and, you know, 
just take it easy and maybe maybe watch some movies that are not related to a book for once because you know when i get stuck into a book when i start working a book i only really watch the movies that are associated with the subject so i tend to kind of close myself in and just concentrate hard on on that stuff so i have a pile of westerns that i've bought on blu-ray recently that i I feel like I can get stuck into over Christmas and, you know, maybe I'll get to come over to America in the new year, you know, and get to meet everybody, including yourself. So that'd be cool. That'd be great. So how many times did you have to watch Nightmare on Elm Street 5? <laughs> you know what? Of all of the films, I think I watched that the least. <laughs> but, you know, I damn man, that's I think that's a film I still haven't quite come around to loving yet. You know what I mean? It's. I thought, you know, with some of these, as I say, like even with the Walter Hill movies, some of the ones you kind of, you think you like less, you end up loving for myriad reasons because you've discovered something about them. Elm Street 5, I still haven't found that hook <laughs> to kind of get me to to truly love it, even though I, I, I love all the other stuff. But um, you know what? It's part of a series I love. So if I'm ever having like a nightmare weekend, of course mm. it's in there. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. So it's, I'm never going to skip over it, but it'll just be just a little bit lower in my my rankings <laughs> right and, and just to do a cross promotion i recently uh was a guest on the zombie girls podcast to talk about uh freddy's dead which is one of my all-time favorites and me too um we had a great talk about that and actually they're about to come out with a uh interview episode with uh, the director rachel uh tell i can never say it right talalay talalay um they oh. have an interview with her coming out on their most deadly um uh, series with under the zombie girls umbrella so oh, i recommend awesome. everyone check that out because she's just an awesome person fantastic if they're if they ever want to talk to me about the elm street book i'm here okay all right well that wraps up another episode wayne thank you for joining me where can people find you i'm on facebook and i'm on instagram under wayne burn author so yeah you can follow me there and you can pick up the book anywhere you know it's available from all the major stores from all the indie stores Amazon, all the usuals, but also, of course, McFarlane Publishing, my, my own publisher. So, yeah, it's available everywhere. Go check it out. Go check out some Walter Hill movies. You won't be disappointed. Awesome. All right. Well, we appreciate everyone who for listening. We really appreciate, would appreciate it if you would give us a rating and review on iTunes, a rating on Spotify, and check out our Patreon for bonus content. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypts. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch, but be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs>